Welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. I'm your host, Allison Treat. Hello, readers, and welcome to episode 28 of season four of Historical Fiction Unpacked. I'm so glad you're here listening to us. Today, I have a repeat guest. We had Lisa E. Betts on the show last year to talk about her debut novel, Death and a Crocodile. And today she's going to talk about her second book in the same series. So Lisa is an engineer turned mystery writer. She infuses her novels with authentic characters who thrive on solving tricky problems. Her debut novel, Death and a Crocodile, which I mentioned, it won several awards, including the Golden Scroll Novel of the Year in 2021. Lisa is a Bible study leader, library volunteer, and an active member of the Lancaster Christian Writers. Empty nesters, she and her husband reside outside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, with Scallywag, their rambunctious cat, who is the inspiration behind Nemesis, the naughty cat who adds mischief to the pages of her Olivia Amelia mysteries. When not writing, Lisa plays with her grandson, directs church dramas, and experiments with ancient Roman recipes. Lisa and I had a wonderful conversation the second time around. We actually talked in early March. So just kind of a heads up because we mentioned the UK, Ukraine crisis. Um, it was early on in the war in Ukraine and um, the refugee crisis there. So just so you have some context for when we were speaking about this, um, I unfortunately was not able to release the episode until now, but I think you're going to greatly enjoy it and run out and get her book. So without further ado, here is my interview with Lisa E. Betts. Lisa, thank you for joining me again on the show today. I'm so excited to be here. It's a wonderful show. Thank you. Last year, you came on to talk about your debut novel, Death and a Crocodile. Today, we'll be talking about your second book, the next installment of the Olivia Amelia mystery series. It's titled Fountains and Secrets, and it released in January. Can you tell me about this new book? Sure. So imagine a world where Nancy Drew meets first century Rome. Mm. A search for a missing friend turns dangerous when Livia uncovers evidence of corruption within Rome's water commission. Worse, Livia's brand new husband is furious at her for investigating behind his back. Will they continue to work at cross purposes or can they learn to trust each other and to be honest with each other rather than trying to win the battle of the wills? So it's a, a fast paced story with quirky and perfect characters, a little bit of humor, and it brings the world of the early church to life in a fun way. Cool. It sounds amazing. Um, is there a sausage snatching cat again? Oh, yes, there is. Yes. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, so what inspired you to write this story? I'm sure you wanted to continue Livia's story, but how did you come up with this premise? Yeah, I, um, I fell in love with the period of first century Rome a long time ago. And so I had always intended on, on creating a series of mysteries set here with my, with my spunky character, Olivia. Mm -hmm. um, this particular novel, um, part of it, the fact that it has to do with the Water Commission um, came because I discovered this ancient uh, source that was a report on Rome's entire water system from the aqueducts and how much each thing flowed and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all the way to piping into people's houses. And right. it said in there that there was a big problem with people stealing water. 
And that fascinated me. Wow. So, so she uncovers, not intending to, but she uncovers the fact that there's this whole little scheme going on where people are putting illegal pipes in to, to get around paying the high rates for water. So mm, interesting. So that's the that's the exterior plot. So I kind of created this this plot around there where she stumbles into it. It starts with a missing persons, but he turns out to be killed as a result of some other things that eventually relate back to this this uh, scheme. Right. So both of your books begin with um, murders, I guess. Then so far, correct. Right. Although they they don't at first realize this one is a murder, but it does turn out to be so. Right. Both of these books are set in ancient Rome, and you mentioned briefly that you you love this time period. Can you tell me why you love writing about this time period so much? Well, first of all, I've been teaching Bible studies for 35 years, and so I have long been trying to learn more about the culture and the history of this period because it affects how well we understand the Bible, the New Testament. So that's what I love to mm-hmm. do is to bring the time period to life as we're talking through the stories and help um, everybody in the class to, to grasp it in a, a new, fresher, um, deeper way. So that's part of the mm-hmm. reason. Also, I, as I'd like to call myself, I'm quietly unconventional. And so I just like reading about weird periods that other people don't. <laughs> and this is one of them. Right. But you, in your books, you make them fascinating. So well, I think that people are very, very much enjoying learning about that time period through your novels. I think any time period could be fascinating. And if you have a writer that thinks it's fascinating, then I think the book ought to be good. Yes. Yeah, you're right. So how much freedom did women have in ancient Rome? Is it likely as, as Livy as a sleuth, is is that likely to happen at that time period? Well, being a sleuth isn't particularly likely, but the Roman period it was a patriarchal period, so we don't think that women had a lot of um, freedom. But in actual fact, if you look at the legal system, women enjoyed legally enjoyed more freedom and more rights in ancient Rome than they did through the entire um, medieval period up to more modern times. Wow. So they were allowed to inherit property and run a business and, and initiate lawsuits or be sued uh, and all these kind of things. Um, yeah, really did have, there really was a little bit of power there. You, you still had to have men involved. So creating a sleuth in this period, I had to balance allowing her to be independent and do things, but there are just some lines you can't cross. <laughs> so she, ne- she she can't completely solve mysteries without some men to do the things that women just wouldn't be allowed to do. You know. Okay. What kinds of things can you say without spoilers? Well, you know, you have to keep social propriety, especially since she's just married into the aristocratic class. So she can't mm. be seen talking singly with with men of low class or, you know, so there's propriety right. issues that need to be kept. Um, and there are certain places where it's just too dangerous or inappropriate for a, a, a female of a wealthy class to set foot in. Right. You know, low class taverns or back alleys and kind of places like that. Um so she had right. to learn when to say no and when to say yes. And of course, other wonderful heroines in mystery fiction throughout the ages have had these similar kinds of problems. Mm-hmm. Of course. 
And you did mention um, that her husband kind of forbids her to to do this, to try to figure out the mystery because he doesn't want her to get hurt. So was that the kind of thing that like you better not cross your husband or go against his wishes in those in those days? Well, certainly in in the legal system, you know, in the Roman mindset, the, the, the man of the house has complete authority in all decisions. Um, right. And so, yes, so that's really the, the subplot of this book is them coming to terms with this. So at the beginning, she's trying to do it behind his back and not let him know. And that's what makes him mad. So as they yes. work through the book, they're learning to trust each other and be honest with each other instead of trying to keep secrets. Um, so that's one of the main things that they're learning. And so my goal was that by the end of the book, they had to some level at least come to terms with the fact that she's going to keep solving mysteries. Right. And she's going to learn to trust that she doesn't have to go behind his back, that the two of them can hopefully eventually work as a team. Yeah. So that's... um it's interesting that she is facing these challenges as um, as she's newly married. Do you have tips that you want to give to women who want a stronger marriage? Well, yes. Both, both Livia and Avitus um, come to marriage from dysfunctional families. So their parents did not have good marriages in the sense that we would call them good marriages. And of course, right. Arranged marriages was the norm in ancient Rome, so people weren't marrying for love. And mm -hmm. and in the Roman mindset, they didn't think like our Judeo-Christian mindset, so their ideals about what makes a good relationship were different too. Um, mm -hmm. So they have a very different framework to start with, but Livia has Christian mentors, and so she at least has a model for what a good Christian marriage does look like. Um, yeah, uh, and she she's not yet to the place where she believes hers can ever get there. But we'll we'll work on that. <laughs> but in the meantime, <sighs> in the meantime, she is learning. You know, obviously they're learning. They're learning about trust and respect and honesty versus working behind each other's back. Um, so they've they've started to learn about that, and they'll continue to learn about things. But one um, important thing that they learn is that neither, neither side gets everything their own way that in a healthy marriage, there's some give and take. Mm -hmm. um, so while yes, the man is the head of the household, that doesn't mean that a good marriage has him always getting what he wants and the, and the wife always submitting to everything his way. And, right. And one of the bonuses of, Embracing our spouse and sometimes giving into them is that it enables us to learn things that they're interested in that we didn't know um, anything about. For example, when my husband and I first got married, he was uh, very much into hunting and fishing, which was not something I knew about. So mm -hmm. he expanded me in appreciation for, for nature and learning how to cook game animals and, and stuff. And I dragged him off to see plays, which wasn't something he ever did. And so we learned to embrace <laughs> each other's um, hobbies that way by some give and take. Right. Yeah, sounds similar to my marriage, except that my husband's an engineer and you used to be an engineer. So that's yes. interesting. <laughs> but you still loved plays because I've dragged him to many 
place. So back to the book, um, our society today, it elevates image over character. What pitfalls does judging people by their image lead to in your books? Yeah, that's a, it's a wonderful question. Now, certainly in, in the first book, In Death and a Crocodile, um, one of mm-hmm. the issues that she faced was that her dad was going to arrange a marriage for her because, you know, she was that age. And, and she, um, when she first meets this guy, she has a bias against what, who think, she thinks are arrogant aristocrats. And so she immediately judges him poorly, whereas she has this other friend of the family who is charming and says things to, you know, make her feel good. And so she thinks, oh, he's definitely the guy. And as the book, mm-hmm. the first book goes on, she learns that the true character is much different than the image. Um, in the second mm. book, we don't have that particular thing, but at the beginning, she, she, Livia is blaming Avitus and his um, not wanting her to do stuff. She thinks it's because he's worried about his image. So there is this oh. concept in ancient Rome called dignitas, which is kind of like dignity. Mm-hmm. Only it's a much bigger thing than just dignity. It encompasses um, status and um, honor and how much power you wield and, you know, how powerful your friends are and how handsome you are and, and a whole host of, of image based and success based qualities. And so that was like the ideal virtue of a Roman was to have, you know, the more dignitas, the better and anything that hurt your dignitas should be avoided. So obviously if that's the goal for a man, then he wants his wife to only do things that make him look good. Yeah. And so that's why she's blaming. She thinks, Oh, well, it's just, he's not really worried about me. He just cares about his reputation. And, um, her, her maidservant and some others help her see that that is not, in fact, true. That he really does care for her. Mm-hmm. That he is not, he, he does not stand on his own dignitas nearly as much as, as some of his Roman peers. He, he actually is concerned for the poor and the helpless and trying to help the lesser class get justice as opposed to brushing them aside because they weren't important enough for him. I see. Interesting. So is that dignitas, is that um, related to the Roman ideal of honor? Right. Yes. Or is that something different? No, that yes. is, yeah, that is the same thing. So honor uh, and it's um, okay. honor is a piece of it. And honor is perhaps the best single word to use to define it. And there are some cultures in today's world that you know, are, are strongly honor conscious. Right. Yes. Um, that are more like how the Romans think about it than we would in our particular Western mindset. Yes. So, how do the teachings of Jesus run counter to the to this dignitas right. or the idea of honor, and and how does that play out in your novels? So, like I said, you know, dignitas is all about making yourself look good, getting more power, and so naturally, you if you hang out with people who are more powerful than you, it makes you look better. If you associate with people who are lower than you, it makes you look worse. So naturally you don't want to hang out with anyone lower than you. And you want mm-hmm. to, you know, have other people recognize your importance. So you like Jesus's little example where he says, don't, don't try and get the best seat at the banquet, seat yourself down at the bottom and 
that that's directly addressing this concept of trying to make yourself look good. Right. And of course, Jesus has lots of examples of ways where he goes against this. What does Jesus do? He he talked with beggars. He embraced little children. He talked with um, sinful women and and Samaritans and a whole list of people that if you were worried about your dignitas, you would avoid at all costs. And yet he not only associated with them, but told them they were worthy and worthy of love, worthy of God's love. Um, and right. he talked about the, the qualities that he said are best for a Christian include things like kindness, humility, servanthood, which exact are the exact opposites of, you know, trying to improve your dignitas and look more important. Mm-hmm. Right. That's, that's interesting. Um, so I don't, you know, when I read the Bible, I feel like I have heard teaching on this, but when I read the the Gospels every day, I read Jesus's commands, I don't think a lot about um, how it related to Roman culture at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we all look at things from our own mindset. And that's why I, I right. think when I'm preparing for a lesson, I have to intentionally myself kind of peel back my own worldview and say, hmm, but how would these people have thought of that? How would these people have responded when Jesus said this? And it's often very interesting to realize, oh, but they would think about it this way. Right. Some of the uh, attitudes that we think of as normal and morally right, like giving to the poor. Um, A Roman would say, well, why would I give to the poor if it doesn't benefit me? Mm Mm-hmm. They, they weren't basing their decision on on the morality like we think. They were basing their decision on, does it improve my dignity or not? Right. So um, your characters act in unconventional ways. Can you give some examples of how Livia had to challenge the status quo in order to solve the mysteries? Well, obviously, um, being a sleuth is yeah. not a normal activity for a female. <laughs> um. So she, you know, she, she's a strongly independent woman. Um, I, I created her, you know, very differently than my personality that she's, she's driven and she's the kind of person that just charges in and does things. And she's very conscious about um, wanting to see justice done. And so she'll jump Mm -hmm. in to things and not worry about what other people are going to think about her. Um, Uh. So, so she is not at all image conscious because she's more concerned about doing the right thing and helping those that need help. And as we just kind of talked about, she's happy to help the people that need help that are nobodies, not just the people that she's trying to schmooze up to. Right. Right. Um, And of course, as we just talked about anyone who's a Christian in this, in this time period, in this society has suddenly adopted a set of beliefs that's very counter to the status quo. Yes. It's um, amazing how I think about how, how much more challenging it was to be a Christian in the beginning of Christendom than it is now, or especially over most of my lifetime, at least in the U S yes. Yes. In our our society. Livia wasn't facing um, active persecution like there will will be in like 15 years later in in Rome. Right. But but nobody 
nobody in Rome will understand why she wants this weird, weird religion where it's all about humility and forgiveness. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. So, yeah. Right. She, and so um, as the books progress, she and her husband are going to have talks about this because she has to convince him that it makes sense and it's going to take some work. Yes, I'm sure. Um, so many of your characters, including the sleuth's sidekick, are misfits in some way. First of all, tell me how the sleuth's sidekick is a misfit, but also tell me about this, um, how it fits with your, you already mentioned your quietly unconventional brand. Right. Well, I mean, we've talked about how Olivia is a misfit in the fact that, you know, she challenges the status yes. quo. So her, her sidekick is her maid, Roxana. And oh. um, Roxana... She was born in a poor section of Rome and ended up, you know, becoming a slave. You learn a little a glimpse of her story in Fountains and Secrets. But anyway, so she wasn't mm-hmm. trained from birth to be this perfect little obsequious maid. So she tends to blurt things out when she should not should not be saying something. She tends to forget her place. Um, so she doesn't look like a very well-trained, very well-behaved lady's maid for a rich lady. But... Mm. Livia needs this gutsy street smart sidekick who a is not afraid to go in with her when she's doing something, but B is not afraid to say, uh, this is not a good idea. (laughs) Right. Um, so she's the perfect maid for Livia, but she's definitely not the mold. And of course, Avitus, um, he experienced rejection at an early age. Um, he had some early wounds that, that scarred both his physical features and his heart that, also get brought out in in Fountains and Secrets. And because of those scars, his worldview has changed. And so he has intentionally kind of stood up for the the weak and the the powerless against the ruling class of Rome kind of as a statement against the injustices that he felt as a child. Um, Mm. So that's an example. And one more example here, Um, he has a secretary named Timon. who was a runaway slave. And they actually had in these days, they actually had people who were professional slave catchers who would go find runaway slaves and bring them back. So this, so this, this intelligent, educated man fled his former master, ran away, set up his little business, then got hauled back to Rome and Avitus purchased him for cheap because now he's a known runaway. Um, Mm. And everybody said, Oh, you're making a big mistake. But he said, no, this is a great, because Avitus, like Livia, can see past the image, the exterior, to the true character. And he said, ah, this guy is an intelligent guy who can do a great job as my secretary. And so he treats him well, and they learn to respect each other, and they have a great relationship. Right. Yeah, that's great. Um, And so this is, how did you come up with this quietly unconventional brand that you, um, is it just because you like to put misfits in your book and (laughs) well yeah it's the other way around i living authentic authentically um is one of my Mm -hmm. core beliefs um letting others see the imperfect sometimes eccentric real me um but i like to do it in my own quiet way i'm not out there trying to be unconventional and a rebel or anything i'm just quietly living by my own beliefs and quietly, you know, letting other people see my art, um, that kind of thing. And so I try and blog yeah. about that with people. And that's why I have called my blog um, and my website quietly unconventional. Because 
That's right. something I hold strongly. So then, yes. So I'm quietly unconventional and I'm writing um, mystery set in ancient Rome, which is pretty unconventional. And I'm filling them <laughs> intentionally with people who are a little unconventional, who are misfits because I, um, I love reading underdog stories. I'm uh, seeing how the, the, the people who aren't cool or perfect, you know, rise to the occasion and are brave enough to, to overcome despite being underdogs, those kind of stories have always attracted me. So those are the kind of stories I want to write. Yes, I love that. Those kind of stories are wonderful. So what are you working on next? Is there more to come in the yes. series? Yes, I am working on um, the next story. It's uh, My working title is Ode to Poison. Mm. So obviously poison is involved in this one. Wow. It's going to be a while before it comes out, but I'm excited about it. And um, there is a character, one of the one of the bad guys in Fountains and Secrets, will continue into the next one. So that'll be okay. Fun. So you said it'll be a while, so it won't be released the same time of year next year. You have a little I, longer. I don't know yet. We'll see how fast I can get okay. written. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I know it, it depends on the publisher. Sometimes people are working like three books ahead and they know exactly when each one is releasing, but with other publishers, it's yeah. I don't have that slower kind of process contract right now. So yeah. Yeah. But it sounds, sounds like another fascinating installment. So this is a question I ask all my guests and I'm mm -hmm. sure you remember it from last time, but maybe your answer is a little different this time. I don't know. How do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? Well, certainly history is applicable because we can always learn things from history so that we don't repeat those mistakes again. Um, human nature right. doesn't change. So mm. the, the underlying truths of any good book apply to all of us at all times because you know, we're all humans. And so we tend to have the same kinds of problems. Um, authenticity versus image is, is just as important or just as valid today as it was in ancient Rome. Right. Um, and, you know, learning to have a positive loving relationship versus a relationship based on lies and not trust. That's just as relevant today. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And to, to answer your question in a different way, we just read a book in my book club called The, the Last Train to, to uh, England or to London, which um, was talking about rescuing Jewish children right before World War II broke out. And when I mm. picked it, I didn't realize how eerily similar it would be to what's happening right now in the Ukraine. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that, and it was based on a true period, you know, a true thing that happened in history. And so, right. Yeah. It's, um, it's amazing. Sometimes when I, a lot of times when I'm reading historical fiction, there are so many parallels to things going on in our lives now, um, especially during the, the pandemic. Um, even just, you know, noticing the hardships that people live through and, and knowing that, that you could live through something difficult too. Right. Yes. I have, I have read that um, the children who are most resilient are the ones 
who have who understand the most about their own personal family history. Mm, yeah, I've heard that also. So history, even if it's not your history, I think all history helps us learn exactly what you say, that no matter our challenges may look a little different than theirs, but people over the course of history have, have overcome amazing odds um, and succeed. Yes, yes absolutely. Well, Lisa, this has been another great conversation. What is the best way for listeners to follow you? Well, my website is lisaebetz.com. That's L-I-S-A-E-B-E-T-Z.com. You can also Mm -hmm. see I have a a Facebook page, Lisa E. Betz Writer um, on Facebook. Um, And my books are available uh, wherever Christian books are sold. Great your local Christian bookstore, you can go ask for them. You can find it on christianbook.com or Barnes and Nobles, Amazon, all those things. Right. My books again are um, Death and a Crocodile and Fountains and Secrets. Right. And we will link to those in the show notes so that um, listeners can get right to your books and buy them and find your website and your Facebook page and all of that good stuff. Yes. Wonderful. Great. Thank you so much for being with us today, Lisa. It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Well, my friends, I am sure that you enjoyed that conversation. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links to Lisa's book, as well as her social media and her website. You can find those in your podcatcher app or on my website at alisontreat.com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash B-L-O-G. Now, if you'd like to help the show, if you're enjoying Historical Fiction Unpacked, I would love it if you could follow the show and um, rate and review it. That is not too difficult to do. In Apple Podcasts, you just scroll down through the episodes of my particular show, and you'll come to a place where you can give a star rating and leave a review. It can be a short review, but it helps other people find the podcast, other lovers of historical fiction to find the show. And we know that everyone who loves historical fiction would love to hear the interviews we share on Historical Fiction Unpacked. So doing that would be fantastic. And if you want to get involved more, you can join our um, our group on Facebook. It's Historical Fiction Unpacked Podcast Group. You, you can get there from the show notes, or you can get there just by searching Facebook for it. You can also follow our Instagram account at Historical Fiction Unpacked. And if you'd like to support the show monetarily, please check out my Patreon account. It's patreon.com slash Treat, and I have a lot of benefits for um, patrons on there. And I know that you may find something very useful. So check that out and see if you're interested. So my friends, when I think about what Lisa was saying about um, the idea of image versus authenticity, I wanted to find a quote about authenticity. authenticity and I found a great quote from Charles R. Swindoll. He said, I know of nothing more valuable when it comes to the all-important virtue of authenticity than simply being who you are. So my friends, keep being who you are and keep reading historical fiction. I will talk to you again next week. 